0: Father God, I am grateful today that we live in a country that's free. I'm grateful for the gospel of Jesus, which is free. I'm grateful for the call of Christ, which is deep and meaningful. And I'm thankful for the forgiveness of my sins on the cross of Calvary. So Lord, I ask you right now to help us as a church to grow We don't want to have a righteousness based on rags at the time of the end. We want a righteousness based on what Jesus did for us at the cross and a righteousness that takes the virtue of the cross, that takes the victory of the cross and puts it in our lives every day from morning to night so that we live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Father, may we never forget that we are accepted in the Beloved by what has been done for us in history. And Lord may that truth sustain your people hold them as we open the word of God and we seek wisdom from Peter Peter's pride in Jesus name amen George Washington is the father of our country he our general George Washington you might say he was a general and then the president of the United States. He was such a a magnificent influence to hold everybody together so this great republic could be formed. He fought for the United States. He risked his life for its early formation. He endured for it. He took all kinds of ridicule. If he had failed, England would have hung George Washington. He did not fail. And he fathered this nation He fathered it, and he fathered others as the mentors of brilliant men who put together our Constitution, our financial system, and others. There's nothing on earth in the political realm as noble and brilliant as the United States Constitution. I'm not saying that because I'm American. I'm saying that because I'm a student of political philosophy and history. It is unique in the history of the world. People can sometimes forget, though, our noble beginnings and descend into unpatriotic and selfish attitudes and actions, even on the 4th of July. Let us not forget that the 4th of July for us is the day in which we expressed our freedom as Americans. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. These are the two great men of our republic, along with Abraham Lincoln, the three. I I see their faces together. The great respect that Martin Luther King Jr. had for George Washington was evident in his struggle to preserve the principles of our Constitution in the Civil Rights Movement. Perhaps he got the idea from George Washington who admired, along with the other founding fathers, this country. And so he used Christian principles of protest. Not radical principles of protest, but Christian principles of protest. Similar to what Gandhi used, actually, in India as well, who had learned the Christian faith and the principles of Christ to rebirth this country in the civil rights era. And so two great men on the 4th of July, let us not forget them. In the year 1783... On Sunday of June 8, George Washington felt it important to remind the citizens of this new experiment in freedom, the United States of America, to remember their noble calling, the religion upon which they drew their moral strength, and their noble destiny as citizens of a good and kind country. The minute we come to believe that our country is evil is the minute we stop nurturing the virtues of God and goodliness and in goodness that was part of the fabric of the earlier origins of America. George Washington wrote these words, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have you and the state over which you preside in his holy protection that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another for their fellow citizens of the United States at large And particularly for the brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all, to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, And without an humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Amazing circular he sent out in the year 1783. He was giving a gentle prod to a baby country to help its citizens remember that we're all Americans with a noble calling to pursue virtue and peace in the world so we should love each other and live as free brethren in a free country. Our Christian Constitution. I say our Christian Constitution because the Constitution of the United States was not possible without the Judeo-Christian background, the mentality that gave us the, 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 the concepts of freedom, freedom, of individual worth, this came from Christianity, and it was put right into the Constitution of the United States. Our Christian Constitution raised up a country that saved the world during World War I, that saved the world during World War II, and that prevented the evil specter of global communism from taking control of planet Earth in the aftermath of World War II. Adolf Hitler was a fascist, And he was enamored with the occult. He was not a practical believer in anything. And he led Germany to kill 6 million Jews in World War II. And and close to 13 to 14 million other people died because of Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. I despise racism and what it has done to this country and to this world. And we can see its marks in Adolf Hitler. But according to the Wall Street Journal... As of yesterday, July 30, 2020, 100 years of communism has brought 100 million deaths to planet Earth. It's just as it's just as bad or worse than fascist Germany. So we don't need these philosophies of the world. We don't need to act like fascist, uh, racist, and we don't need to act like communist progressives who want to transform the Christian culture and impose a death ideology. It'd be a good thing for us to remember that little little circular sent out by George Washington today on July 4. Like George Washington, the apostle Peter wanted to remind the citizens of the Christian church to remember their noble calling, the religion upon which they drew their strength and their noble destiny as citizens of a good and kind country that is the kingdom of God. You know, I'm reminded in this circular of the words of Peter. So let's go back to 2 Peter 3, verse 1, and let's look at the circular, the second epistle of Peter that was sent out to the Christian church in a similar fashion to George Washington's circular. This is now, he writes the second letter that I have written to you, Beloved, and in both of them I have aroused your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The second epistle of Peter is Peter's prod. That's what it really is. A prod, if you look it up in the dictionary, a prod can mean to poke, but it can also mean to provide a gentle reminder. Peter wasn't poking at anyone, but he was trying to remind the Christian church of what really matters. Peter was concerned that the church would forget the wise words of the prophets and the commandment of the apostles that came through Jesus Christ. See, we can hear truth. We can understand what God is saying. And then we can disconnect with it by neglecting our lives to the degree that we fail to live the Christian faith. In one verse in the Greek, Peter's saying, I am trying literally to wake you up to remember these things. So the church had fallen asleep. It had lost the ideals of the early apostolic religion. And Peter was dying. The apostles were quickly fading. Paul had already been beheaded by Nero. And he says, look, it matters where we came from. It matters what our origins are. It matters what the ideals of the Christian faith are about. Friend, it's possible to fall asleep in the Christian church, to drift, to forget what Jesus did for you and me, to fail to rehearse the Word of God and its teachings, to look to others like philosopher kings and theologians for authority instead of to go back to the documents of the Word of God. When that happens... Every one of us in the Christian church, and I'm speaking to the time of the end in which we're living, we need a prod from God, and Peter's prod is God's prod for the church in the last days. Peter's prod matters to us today, just like George Washington's gentle reminder mattered to our country in its early formation. Peter refers to, quote, the commandment in 2 Peter 2.21, and here in 2 Peter uh, 2.3, verse 2, excuse me, 2 Peter 3, verse 2. So what is the commandment? Just in a nutshell, Peter is summarizing the teaching of the gospel of Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, he stuffed our sins in the grave so they couldn't be dug up, and that he rose for our justification, like, Hebrew, like Romans 4.25 says, which means he, he, he was raised for our acceptance before God. And that basic teaching transformed the world of Peter's day. It gave people freedom from their past. It gave them a new beginning, regeneration of heart as the Holy Spirit worked on the teaching and truth of Christ's kindness, of God's kindness in saving us. And with that truth, the apostolic church was born from the commandment that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so that teaching affected the lives of others as they begin to live like the lamb that died for them. So the commandment of God must be reaffirmed in the church. The gospel of Jesus, friend, is more than just the truth of what Jesus did. The gospel of Jesus changes lives, and we are to live for Christ because of what Christ did for us and because Christ is with us to the end of the age. Peter knew this. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, for all of you must understand this. When he says, all of you must understand this, everyone's ears should be listening. All eyes should be glued to the text in verse 3 because this matters to us, all of you. First of all, all of you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter is here describing the modern world that we live in, the last days, as a scoffing and angry kind of world. He says the last days very clearly in verse 3. So he is looking to the future. He said, when you get down to the end of time, people are going to live unglued. People are going to focus on making fun of the Christian faith. People are going to go after the truths that the apostles in Christ have given. And he uses the term the last days. He takes it right out of the book of Daniel. Daniel 12:4. you've read the verse before. Shut up the words, seal the book to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. In Daniel 10:14, the angel Gabriel shows up and tells Daniel, I'm going to tell you in the vision of the king of the north, the king of the south, what will happen to your people in the latter days or the last days. We know from the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 40, by exegeting Daniel 7 correctly, as well as other passages in Revelation 13 and 12, that 1798, the year that the medieval church system collapsed, is the end of that time prophecy which inaugurates the time of the end, the 1260-year time prophecy when the church was in the wilderness. So the French Revolution, its attack upon the medieval church state order in 1798, brought us into the era of modern nations. Moses spoke of the latter days in Deuteronomy 4.30 because he wanted God's people to know that God would be there for them after they failed, after they had fallen, after they had let the truth slide. He wanted them to know in the latter days that a loving, kind God would be ready to bring his people home to him. Deuteronomy 4.30, when you are in tribulation and all of these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice And here's why, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not fail you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. Peter knew this. Peter understood this. Peter had experienced this in his own life when Jesus had found Peter after denying him. And Peter had come to know that God loves Peter more than the sin that Peter had committed. That God is a forgiving God and from the kindness of God, Peter's life was changed. Friends, we may forget God. I have it on occasion. Maybe you have. In fact, we all have. We very effectively, at times in our lives, have forgotten God. And yet, God does not forget his people for one single day, not one. Here, Peter is calling on the church that is God's people, that's us, to remember the truth that we will need in the latter days to continue being God's people, to be able to surmount the tribulation of the latter days. It is God's mercy, it's God's kindness that carries us through life. Friend, if you really mess up in your life or you remember something in the distant past where you did, and that's all you can interact with, then you're going to fail. But you put beside it and you put on it the blood of Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, the love of Christ that looked into the eyes of Peter and loved him enough so that Peter could not go out and hang himself like Judas did. The love of Christ that sought Peter out on resurrection morning. The love of Christ that restored Peter on the Sea of Tiberias. The love of Christ that loves you just like that. Friends, you can overcome any tribulation by the mercy of God in your life. Peter himself wasn't living in the latter days, but we are. So Peter wrote for his time in a way, but more so for our time in the last days. Thus, Peter's prod is for us. It's prophecy. It's it's to be used with the book of Daniel to better understand the times in which we're living. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. First of all, Peter writes, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own passions and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 4 ends there. Peter defines the world of the latter days as a world in which intellectuals, great thinkers, others, will scoff at the core claims of the Christian religion and especially Bible prophecy. I've been in the association of pastors who have said, oh, that Daniel and Revelation stuff, we don't want to hear any more about that. Well, just give me the love of Jesus. You've heard that. Well, I'm going to tell you Jesus is in the book of Daniel. He's the fourth one standing in the fire with the three Hebrew worthies. He's the prince of princes in Daniel 8. He's the prince of the hosts in Daniel 8. He's the mighty man in Daniel 8. He's the Messiah prince in Daniel 9. He's the man in linen in Daniel 10, Daniel 12. Christ permeates the book of Daniel. When someone says something like that, they're saying, ignorantly, I don't want Christ, because Christ is in the prophecies. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Christ is speaking in the prophetic word. And so when we don't pay attention to prophetic teaching, we're really not paying attention to Jesus, the predictions, <clears throat> the predictions of Christ that he would come are to be taken seriously by the church. <clears throat> It says, uh, Peter says that, they, that these scoffers at the end will be guided by lust, which means desire in the original language. They may act like they are pure thinkers and intellectuals. They may clothe their skepticism with philosophy that seems enlightened and complicated ideas that seem profound. But Peter says that they are really motivated by evil desire. And P- Peter's trying to tell us Don't be fooled by this, and don't ignore this fact. They may sound smart. They may look smart. They may make you feel dumb they're so smart. And they may be able to talk you into a corner and push the degrees in your face, but don't forget that they are motivated by the same kind of desire that brought sin into the world and that they are not really seeking truth because God's Word is truth. If you really want to look at the evidence, you have to to interact with the Bible, not just other things that you want to see. And so a mind that will not look at the truth will go its own direction. The French Revolution, over 200 years ago, was a world revolution that overturned faith and virtue and the Christian ideal in the culture of Europe. It brought the global global conflicts of the 19th and 20th century that has killed millions of people. It rejected the, the, the idea of Christian virtue, of faith in Jesus, the Bible, and the teachings of Jesus. It all went away in Europe, became secular. They outlawed religion in various countries, and Europe paid a heavy price for this transformation of its culture. The French Revolution was also a revolution that fostered immorality and selfish desire in the cause of personal freedom. Inmore, in fact, if you ever get a chance... You should read two books side by side. You should read Rousseau's, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's, The Social Contract, and then you should read uh, the second treatise on government. Oh, my, I'm just drawing a blank. You ever draw a blank here? No, excuse me. John Locke's second treatise on government. Anyone who takes a course in political history has to read these along with Leviathan and Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, but these two books should be read side by side because John Locke's treatise on government was used by Jefferson to draft our Declaration of Independence. It influenced the Constitution of the United States and and Rousseau's social contract influenced the French Revolution, radically different in their core concepts. In the French Revolution ideal based on Rousseau, it's the group that matters. You can do anything to the individual for the sake of the social contract, the group. But in John Locke's second treatise, using Christian biblical principles, the king himself cannot violate your fundamental liberties because your fundamental liberties don't come from the king. They come from God and the word of God, and you are a person of worth in the eyes of a holy God. And that's the principle that was the undergirding foundation of the Bill of Rights and other things that we hold sacred in our Constitution. And so you should read those two. The French Revolution was all about me, my rights, but group rights not about the individual who can be sacrificed. And thus they did. They killed thousands of people for the sake of the revolution without judicial process or anything else. Viva la revolution. Do what you want. It's right. Immorality is a fundamental freedom. It's a human destiny, a right. And thus they messed up the culture of Europe. Uh, Edmund Burke wrote against this. When the French Revolution was devastating Europe, he says, "What has happened in France should shock the world," and it did. And as a result, Bible societies sprang up, missionaries began to take the gospel to the furthest corners of the earth, because they were scared to death of what was happening in France. Friends, the idea of revol- ideas of revolutionary France have ha- gave direct influence to two men of prominence, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who together produced the work we know in history as the communist manifesto which articulated the political philosophy of communism for the first time based on atheism of materialism and the belief that all that matters is in fact the material world there's only so many resources that we can use so you can't create wealth you can't create things like the like like the reformers had taught, you can only use what you have. And in this pessimistic view of, of economic reality, this pessimistic view of politics, it plunged the world into a state where 100 million people died at the hands of communist revolutionaries. Any group of scoffers, intellectuals, scientists, philosopher kings, theologians, or politicians in the church or outside of the church Who hold this atheistic philosophy are disobedient to the gospel of Jesus and the commandment of Jesus to the apostles. Our country was raised up on Christian principles. In verse 4, Peter says that they say, Where is the promise of his coming? Jesus isn't coming, they say, so you can live any way you want to. I, I sometimes go on YouTube and I listen to men like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. Lawrence Krauss, cosmological physicist. And I, I listen to them scoffing at the Christian faith. Bless Lawrence Krauss's heart. I'm not saying something he hasn't. He'll show a bunch of slides of all the, the great gods of antiquity. He'll put Odin, Thor, Zeus. And then he'll put Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He says, all of these are nonsense gods. And then he'll look at Yahweh. There's no difference. He's just like the rest. And then he'll scoff Jesus. And I wonder if he's really read meaningfully the writings of Jesus. Sam Harris is a little more provocative. Sam Harris's problem with the Christian faith has a lot to do with the doctrine of everlasting hell. He doesn't understand the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of an everlasting hell where people burn forever and ever. And so in his misunderstanding of the Bible, he pulled back from the idea that God can be a loving God and has rejected it altogether. And then there's the evolutionary side of Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion and other works that like the gene machine. It believes that we're just living in a materialist mechanical world. And so the gene propels us, and we come up with our own ideas of right and wrong, forget the Bible. It's religion for him is a form of child abuse when you teach it to your children. Amazing. We're living in the age described by Peter. And of course they say, where is the promise of his coming? There's no second coming of Jesus. Christian prophecy, the prophecies of Daniel Revelation, nonsense. And Then Peter describes the foundation principle upon which these scientists have rested their theories in the modern age. Scientific revolution occurred after Sir Isaac Newton, who was the great monotheist, great committed Christian, who knew his Bible, who studied Daniel and Revelation, who wrote about these books. I have studied his writings It was followed by enlightenment forces of atheism that tried to hijack the scientific discoveries of Newton and others who were committed Christian men. I mean, we have motors in our our cars. We have lights above us because of, of Faraday, who was a committed Christian who discovered the principles of electromagnetism. Einstein was not a committed Christian, but he followed the great discoveries of these men. Without them, Einstein would have discovered nothing And so we are living because of Christian men, the discoveries of the Christian faith that gave us the foundations of modern science, but it was hijacked by atheistic, secular worldview. And the foundation principle of modern science is called the uniformitarian principle. It's the basis of atheistic science. And Peter says, he articulates it perfectly, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That is the core principle of skepticism in the scientific world. It's called uniformitarianism. It's also known as the doctrine of uniformity or the uniformitarian principle. It's the assumption that the same natural laws that processes and processes that operate in our present scientific observations have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe the same way. That's an assumption. Peter is challenging that assumption. Because that assumption means God cannot intervene in history. That God cannot come and make a difference. That God cannot judge the world. Modern scientific skeptics would have you believe that if things are stable today, it's because change is slow, gradual, and nothing is going to break in like a crisis to end it all. It's amazing how in modern science, they're talking about the dinosaurs being killed by a meteorite. They've located the, the place where that meteorite hit. It's in the Yucatan Peninsula. And that, it's called the crater of doom. When it hit the Atlantic Ocean at the time of the dinosaurs, it created a tidal wave, a mile high, moving at the speed of a jet over the continents. They will tell you it created a global flood. Yet they can't connect the dots between that massive evidence in the Yucatan Peninsula and what the Bible says about Noah's flood when it says the fountains of the deep exploded or broke forth. Noah is saying the sea exploded. A super tsunami hit the continents. The Bible evidence matches the physical evidence of observation. So Peter says they deny this fact. It's a fact that you can observe with satellite imaging from NASA. You can see the crater of doom right there in the Yucatan Peninsula. Peter says there's only one problem with the uniformitarian principle. Denies the facts of history that a global flood really happened on planet Earth. He says these scoffers choose to be ignorant of the facts of history and geology that God intervened in divine judgment in the past. Verse 5, he says they deliberately ignored this fact, that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth formed out of water and by means of water, verse 6, through which the world that then existence existed was deluged and water, with water and perished. Sometimes we fail to read the Bible right as Christians. Sometimes we think we know so much about the Bible, we don't listen well to the Bible, as it informs us about scientific principles and facts that would guide us in our discovery. Friend, the Bible doesn't claim the universe was created 6,000 years ago. I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, the universe was created 6,000 years ago. The Bible doesn't teach that. Peter says the universe here, the heavens existed long ago. They're ancient. He's getting this from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's not talking about the earth right away. The heavens, way back. It existed long ago, he says, and the earth then was formed out of water. Wait a second. There was water here when the earth was formed. You go to Genesis 1, 2, and 6, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. That means this planet was terraformed. Something was out there, a water void. If you ever have a chance to look at some of the Hubble discoveries and scientific uh, discoveries of NASA regarding the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune, these moons are water worlds, frozen water worlds hanging in space. Dark voids. If you go into the underneath the surface, the crust of these 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 frozen planets, underneath are oceans, dark oceans. The Bible says the earth was without form and void. Darkness upon the face of the deep. The spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. The book of Hebrews speaks of the heavenly universe as an order that is not of this creation. There was a prior creation, according to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, verse 11. Angels and other worlds existed before our planet was created. How do we know that? Job 38, 4-7. to When God created this world, it says the sons of God sang for joy at the creation of this planet. Extraterrestrial beings observed the creation of this world by Jesus Christ, the commander of the hosts of heaven. So you don't have to fight a battle with the facts to be a Christian. I'm not arguing for Big Bang cosmology. I'm just simply saying that we don't have to recreate the history of creation based on our opinions when we can be guided by the scriptures which show us that there was a controversy in heaven. There was a war in heaven and our world comes late in the game. The Bible doesn't teach that that the universe the Hubble telescope observes that we can see and one day when the James Webb telescope's gets hung out in space and goes far far enough out to take the, the pictures of the early universe, we're going to know how God created the universe because it will be able to peer all the way back into what is perhaps the origin of the universe. And if there was a Big Bang that God directed, it's going to be evident. If there wasn't, it's going to be evident. And the secret will be, are there more galaxies and stars far beyond the reach of the James Webb Telescope? It doesn't matter. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a beginning of this universe. Peter says it was long ago, before the creation of the world, that the universe was made. Verse 7. What does that mean today? But by the same word, he says, the heavens and the earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Because there was a flood, because God intervened to deal with evil in that antediluvian world, Peter is saying God will do the same thing at the last days at the end of the world. He is telling us that God's catastrophic divine judgment comes in two installments in human history. The first was Noah's flood, and the second will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first was with water. The second will be with fire when the Lord Jesus, as Paul says, will be revealed with fire in the glory of the angels. Peter interacts with the skeptics a little bit here. He said, yeah, you're saying everything has gone on for a long time. He tells us why time has gone so long on earth from our perspective since the creation of the world and the flood. Why has it taken so many thousands of years? Why has Christ not come? And the very fact that is the delay that the scoffers use to make fun of the Christian faith, faith, Peter says that delay is evidence of the mercy and the love of God for you and me and the world. God has prolonged the end to save us all. Verse 8, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness but it's forbearing, here's the key point, it's forbearing toward you. Millie, think about that for a second. Boy, I'm hard on me. Others are hard on me. God is forbearing toward me. Can you write that note down? Pastor Mike paused the sermon to make that point. Yeah, God is forbearing toward you. That means he loves you. It means he's patient with you. That means he's trying to work out good things in your life so you can be saved. And here's his motivation Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There goes predestination, the idea that God predestines some to be lost and some to be saved. And he only loves the elect. Nonsense. God loves everyone, the the whosoever of John 3.16. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We don't have to reinvent the words of Peter. We need to accept the fact that God is love. Patience and mercy, friends, are big themes with Peter. Why? Because Peter messed up huge. And Jesus was patient and merciful with Peter. And Peter became a great apostle because of the forbearance of God. Peter says the promise isn't slow, but God is patient. The promise is always immediate. When God makes a promise, his power is active in your life right then and there. But the outworking of it is always at the right time patiently administered when we need it most. Therefore, friend, don't force God to act before the time. Don't expect God to solve your problems and fix everything in the wrong time, your time. It's God's time that matters because God has an eye for the future and your best good. Let his patience work for you. And what does that mean? It means we should be patient. Revelation 14:12 describes the final generation. At the end of the third angel's message, It says here is the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Peter agrees with Paul. Patience is our friend because God is patient. Romans 2 verse 4, Paul is writing, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness? So what is God rich in? He has all the, the planets in the universe. He has galaxies. He has all the gold. There are whole asteroids out there in in our solar system that are full of precious metals. If you could just get a piece of that asteroid, you would, you'd be the richest person in the history of the world. God owns all of that. And so Paul is saying, do you presume upon the riches of what? Not gold, silver, His kindness. God is rich in kindness and forbearance and patience, he says. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That is the primary characteristic of God's character, to be redundant. God is kind, forbearing, and patient. So we should value those principles in our lives and our interaction with others. What does that mean? It means that God knows how bad we have all behaved at some point or another in our lives. He's aware of it. He was there through the, His Holy Spirit. Angel watchers probably could tell Him also. Every misdeed you've ever done, He knows about it. And He could have acted suddenly when you sinned and destroyed you. If justice is all it's about, that's what he would have done. But guess what? He is rich in kindness, forbearance, and patience. God is merciful, and for this reason, God has carried sin for centuries, millennia. He's put up with it so men and women can be awakened by the Holy Spirit, can know the love of God in Jesus, and be saved by his mercy. James tells us that the principle, the core principle of the Ten Commandments that will be operative in the judgment is mercy. So God wants us to be merciful with others because God in Jesus was merciful to us. When you mess up, by the way, I'll take a vote. Has anybody here messed up? What about last week? Don't be specific, just general. Okay, I'll raise my hand. My hand goes up. When you mess up, and Paul says in Romans 7, that's a real problem with Christians, he himself, he says, I tend to mess up. When you mess up, take it to heart that God has been merciful to you and that it hurts God to not destroy evil, but he loves you enough to endure the pain of the process that will fix you up and restore you into his image. He is patient. And so God waits to act at the right time because of his mercy and patience. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, this is not a secret rapture. If it was a secret rapture, it'd be quiet. No one would know the difference. It'd happen. You have to figure it out months, days later. He doesn't say that. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. And notice the description with a loud voice the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. That means this world, if you're looking for a future based on materialism like communism would teach, if you think that all that we have is here, Peter's saying it's not going to be here one day. The world as we know it is coming to an end. It will end in a ball of fire. And then there's, then he gives us the, resp- the, the intellectual and logical outcome of that. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here, here are the moral implications what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So get off this idea that what you have matters. Get off the idea that materialism is the basis of life in the future. And Peter's saying it isn't the basis of anything. He said what matters is the future, waiting for, verse 12, and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. We should have a sober look at reality. This world is coming to an end. What matters is getting home with Jesus, helping as many men and women and children and others get there with us so that our family is the family of God. Is Peter trying to scare us into doing what is right? The answer is No. In fact, the obedience that springs from fear results in the character of a rebel. He's not trying to scare us into the kingdom. He's only trying to prod us, to give us that gentle reminder, to help us to remember. He's a gentle shepherd. He learned how to care for the soul because Christ was gentle with him. So he's prodding us to remember the truth and what really matters in the Christian life. Nothing in this world is going to last into the next world, he's saying. If all you care about is here and you aren't investing the mission of the church, the purpose of saving souls for eternity, then everything you're building a future on is a pipe dream and a house of cards that's certain to fall. You can't do that. Friend, this world is going to go away. It's going to melt. And only the stuff of Jesus is going to stay for the future. So where do we find the riches of God and the kindness of Jesus Christ in our relationship with Jesus Christ? 1 John 2.17 the beloved Apostle John writes, and the world passes away, the lust of it, but he who undo- does the will of God abides forever. So when we take Jesus to heart and we value the Scriptures, we love the Savior, we take our sins to Him, and, and we are grateful for the maintenance program of the Christian faith, Paul says that man or woman lives into eternity. Second Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we wait for a new heaven's, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's no justice here. There's no social justice here. You, you can't make righteousness come on earth. This idea of the postmodern church that we can create the kingdom of God on earth is nonsense. Peter's saying it's going to fail on earth because righteousness is a part of the new and coming kingdom. We endure injustice in the Christian faith. We endure persecution because the world is not the king of God. Peter calls on us to wait for the new heavens and earth. The Greek word translated wait really means to look for something. When you get up in the morning and you look at the sunrise, look for a new one that will take the place of the old, a new heavens and a new earth. Don't think that life will go on forever. It will not. Look with anticipation, with joy, with eagerness for the coming kingdom of God. Make it the motivation of your your life, your service in the church, your work, your assets, your entire energy. As Christians, we are to live with an eye for the future. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, it is the same Greek word, look for these, be zealous to be found by him or in him without spot or blemish and at peace. There's a moral purpose to prophecy. There's a moral outcome to understanding these things. It makes a difference in our lives today. As we wait for the future, we are not to wait around and do nothing with our lives. Peter's clear. We're to wait and be active getting th- certain things together. He says we should order our lives and get every sin out of them, and don't let a single stain take over you in any part of your life. Now, how do you get every sin out of your life? If you're struggling with sin, by taking it to Jesus. If you Look, if you're struggling with sin for years, you take it to Jesus every day of your life, you're a Christian, you're saved by faith. God will give you victory over those sins, but not necessarily in the way you think, in the time you think. There have been certain things that every one of us has struggled with for years, other things we were delivered from in a moment. Why do we have to go in these long struggles with God? Because we learn to trust God. We learn to value His kindness and mercy in the struggle. He could have taken your sinful nature away from you when you were baptized. He didn't do it. So that you would never have confidence in you And never forget that angel perfection did not prevent Lucifer from sinning. So if God had suddenly souped you up and made you perfect like an angel, it wouldn't prevent you from sinning because that which keeps us for eternity is a relationship with God we view the cross. We view the sacrifice of love on the cross, and we come to understand that our only hope is Jesus and his Father and the Christ who is hanging on that cross. That person lives into eternity. So God isn't calling you. Peter says, in fact, be at peace. And what does that mean? Friend, God isn't calling on you to be at war with him. He isn't calling on you to be at war in your own mind with yourself. He's not calling on you to be at war with others. He says, be at peace. Romans 5.1 is one of the great verses in the writings of Paul. It talks about what happens because of Christ's resurrection, Romans 4.25, where it says that, Christ was raised for our justification, which means for our legal acquittal. He was raised so that we could be declared not guilty before a righteous God, even though we have messed up in life. And so the Christian starts the journey by faith as forgiven and justified, not by virtue of his own achievements but by virtue of what God in Christ has done for us in the cross, verified in the resurrection. So Romans 4.25 says he was raised for our justification. Therefore, verse 1, 5.1, since we are justified by faith, faith in Jesus as our Savior, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God is a God of peace. The man started out angry at someone as he was shooting his gun into the air to make a point in these angry times. Bang, 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 shooting his gun in the air. Look at me, I'm angry too. I'm a revolutionary. He got attention that day, all right. He got the attention of the police who tried to calm him down. It was Tuesday, 3.30 p.m. last week. Deputies responded to a report of the man firing his gun in the air about 11 miles north of Santa Cruz. The man was suspected of a carjacking and when they tried to arrest him, the man took off in his car like a rocket ship to Mars. (sighs) Police were chasing him. I always get scared of these high, (coughs) excuse me. I always get scared of these high speed car chases because somebody can get killed. Police car hits someone, someone else. (coughs) He was driving away from the police (coughs) at speeds of over 100 miles an hour going south towards Santa Cruz to the sea. And so they had a decision to make what to do, and they decided to just slow down and let him go. They didn't want anyone to get killed. Very responsible action on the part of the police. Fueled by his rage, though, in the race to the sea, he was on his angry journey to make a point. At over 100 miles an hour, this angry man drove his tired car off the cliff into the air, into the Pacific Ocean. free until he fell into the sea. In the spray and the foam of the sea, the car landed softly on the water and the waves. Stunned, but very much alive, the man climbed out of his car to greet the friendly faces of the police who had let him go. Now they gently arrested him. They checked him in to the local hospital to make sure he was okay, and then they booked him for some pretty serious crimes. Last Tuesday, this angry man learned the hard way that he must be at peace. I wish he had read George Washington's Circular and applied it to his life and heart. Maybe he would have had a different attitude. Peter says, be at peace. Let the gospel work for you in life. Accept God's forgiveness and be easy on yourself. Be easy on others because of Jesus. Stop fighting with what is right in your life and give in to the good that is God in your life. Pursue the pure and the righteous things of a sanctified life. Be at peace, Peter says. Friends, that means you can't solve every injustice in the world by talking up, taking up some cause and getting violent and becoming a revolutionary to show the world how angry you are. That does not change the world. That is not what Martin Luther King Jr. did. While he was angry, he was self-controlled, and his protest was of the kind and character that was, that was part and parcel of the Christian faith. God's people are the people of the cross who who pursue peace in the earth by reflecting his character in the earth. The church is is, is the theater of God's grace, the center of his peace. Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. got it right. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So how did God make peace with an angry world that betrayed him and that rebelled against him by following Satan? How did he do it? How did God make peace with us and our rebel planet? I don't ever get tired of this verse that you see on your screen because it's the truth of how God did it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what motivated God. Galatians 1.20 says, God made peace with sinners by the blood of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to die for you and me and make peace by the blood of his cross. When your religion is an angry religion, it is not God's religion. When your cause is an angry cause, it is not the cause of God. If love is not the cause, the love of Jesus. God loved the world with all its diversity and Jesus died for everyone on the cross that is our peace. There is no place for any kind of racism in the church from any side Because God made peace reign in the church by the blood of the cross. They they can fight out there in the world over this thing and that. They can say, My rights were violated. Jesus never contended for his own rights. And Jesus made peace with the cross because he put his rights aside to die for us. And we had better be at peace in the church and love each other because we are part of the kingdom of God. This world is not going to change for the better. Peter's clear on that because. Another communist revolution won't make it better, nor will any other kind of revolution, a fascist revolution or anything like that. This world will change for the better, friend, when the hearts are changed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to be at peace in the church. We should build up and never tear down that precious man or woman who we don't naturally like who's different from us, who comes from a different background. Why? Because Jesus died for them. He pled for their soul, just like he did for ours on the cross of Calvary. 2 Peter 3.15, And count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. If you go back far enough, Peter and Paul didn't initially get along very well. At the great Jerusalem council, in which the issue of circumcision came up, Paul rebuked Peter to his face. We learn about this in the epistle of Galatians. He says, you're condemned because you've not been truthful about the gospel. You treat people differently. You treat the the Gentiles like they're nothing. You treat the Jews like they're special. The gospel teaches us to make no distinction because God loves everyone the same. Paul reminded Peter forcefully, That Jesus died for everyone, Jew and Gentile, black and white, red and yellow, and any other beautiful color that is part of the rich heritage of the human race, Christ died for everyone is precious. There's a problem with a revolution that builds its future on the backs of those it destroys. A kingdom of hate always falls because hate can never build a future that is worth living in. Because of the cross, Peter came to love Paul. He rebuked him to his face. He came to love his beloved brother Paul. And Peter calls him just that, our beloved brother Paul in the text. Paul had recently died for Jesus. Peter was aware of that. Nero had cut his head off to make a point at Paul's expense to demoralize the early church. But here Peter was prodding the church gently to remember that Paul's writings matter as Holy Scripture. To the end of time, do not lose the teachings of Paul. Verse 16, speaking of this as he does in all his letters... There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away by the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. How many times have people used the writing of Pauls to say in the pulpit that the law of God has been done away with? And they quote Romans 10, which says Christ is the end of the law for justification. And what Paul is really saying is Christ is the end of the law is a trick to make yourself get saved. That Christ is the the purpose of Christ is to teach us that mercy saves us. And so they twist that. Paul is saying lawless men try to do away with the law of God by the writings of Paul. And they're still doing it. When you look to Jesus as your savior, dear heart, you don't do away with the moral law as a righteous standard. You do away with it as a means to prove something to God. We are saved by grace, but you still value his law. Verse 18, Peter continues, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how we change. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's how he ends his book. With the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Focus on him, not you. To him be the glory, both now and the day of eternity. Peter's prod is worth listening to in these last days. Why? Because Peter's trying to tell us to remember God's word. Bank on his mercy, his riches and kindness and mercy and patience. Bank on them. And let the gospel of peace make you a changed person. Be at peace, grow in grace, and be at peace with the God of glory. As you come to know God in Christ, as you come to know his character, it will change you. And one day we will all be like him and we will grow forever and ever and ever in the presence of the one who is so beautiful, our Father God and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is Peter's prod. Peter's prod. Thank you, Peter, for the reminder that we all need in the last days. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Lord God and Jesus for giving us in the Holy Scripture, Peter's prod. May we take it to heart. God bless you. What if you could have a career